the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a newcomer on the scene here in the book of Job. Elihu makes an appearance. Who is he? Why is he here? We'll talk about that next on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Join us. Give and take, point, counterpoint, there's an awful lot of information in the book of Job, especially when it comes to how we comport our lives and how sin comes into play and how God's grace and mercy reacts and responds. Well, today, as we continue our survey of Job, we find ourselves in chapter 32, Elihu, God's messenger. All of a sudden, this Elihu shows up on the scene out of nowhere, seemingly. There's no mention of him before or after. And there are several reasons why. Join us as we explore them together. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, here's our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner, with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Elihu, God's messenger. Now, a new disputer enters into the fray. Elihu has not been mentioned before and This has occasioned, if you can imagine, a great deal of speculation. Who is this man? Is he merely a poetic device, some kind of bridge between the human dilemma, the human controversy, and God's resolution? Is he simply repeating what Eliphaz has said, for there are some marked similarities at certain points? Maybe he's the author. Maybe he is the pre-incarnate appearance of the one who said what Elihu's name means. My God is he who is greater than any other who has ever lived. Maybe Elihu is simply meant to show us that this is as high as man's natural wisdom can go. Man unaided, of course, by special revelation. Or maybe the explanation is as simple as he is just a pert young man who is sick of hearing these old fogies blather on and wants to put an end to the debate. The theories are endless. But remember something as we talk about Elihu for just a minute, and then we're going to get into the text. But there were undoubtedly anywhere from a few to several, maybe even many, many people who were watching this debate listening to it between Job and his three friends. And remember, Job was truly a great man. He wasn't a private individual. He was very public. Many people would have come to either initially encourage him, possibly commiserate with him, or simply maybe just to gawk at him. So there was probably a pretty good size of people who were at least at a distance or who were coming in and out to witness what was going on, and Elihu was among them. Now, why was he not mentioned at the outset 
of the book of Job? Well, I think the explanation is as simple as, had the author mentioned Elihu at the beginning, it would have somehow prejudiced us against Job's three friends and somehow given away the fact that they're not going to be able to carry the debate with Job. And the Holy Spirit, even though the friends had a bad case that Job is suffering because he is a wicked man, the Holy Spirit wanted us to pay careful attention to their words. Because if you remember, they do make many important, valid, godly observations about God's dealings with sinners in this world. Another oddity about Elihu is that Job does not answer him. And I think the reason is because Job agrees with him. Because Elihu brings up some things that Job had not thought of here before. Most importantly, dealing with the purpose of suffering. My guess is that Job is convicted by Elihu because he heard Elihu say something that his three friends had not said yet. And that is, they said, suffering is always punitive. But Elihu said, no, no, suffering may be punitive, but it is productive in the lives of God's people if we yield ourselves to it. And I think that is probably the reason why the Lord does not address Elihu. For an important sense, he was God's messenger to Job. He wasn't a prophet in the formal sense, technical sense of the word, but he was a seed of wisdom in that age of general darkness. He appears to be one of the family of Job at least distantly related to Terah and Nahor. But remember, as Joshua says in chapter 24, that that family was idolatrous. But all sparks of real religion had not yet been erased from that family's heart. So Elihu appears because God uses him to answer Job's dilemma, to answer Job's argument. God is sovereign in suffering. He is wise in suffering when he brings it to us. And he is good when he brings suffering into our lives. Allah, whose main point is simply this. Through suffering, God brings his children away from their sins and preserves them for the, from the judgment that is to come. Now, why does God use Elihu to defend himself? Because if God had done it, it would have totally undone Job at this point in his life. Job heard through Elihu, a fellow creature, a message he very much needed to hear. And it brought conviction to Job. Job was humbled by it. And then God speaks never answering Job's dilemma because Elihu had already answered it instead, revealing his greater glory to Job, restoring his soul to peace, and eventually restoring his life from the ruins. The chapter is easily divided into three sections, verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 14, and verses 15 through 22. 
And in the first section, we see both the patience and the anger of Elihu. Quite an interesting combination. Proverbs 26.12 says, There is more hope for a fool than for a man who is wise in his own eyes. And Job's three friends thought they were wise in their own eyes. They could not prove their premises. Job is wicked. But they held on to their conclusion, God is afflicting Job because he is a wicked man. Verse 1. They couldn't answer him any longer. They had nothing left to say. They couldn't refute him, so they stopped talking. They might have learned something if they had listened to Job, but as with most religious controversies, what tends to happen? Both sides become very in tune to proving the other side is wrong. And that is always a great danger, especially in religious controversies. You know, because we are brothers and we have only one master, it is better for us to seek God's truth, humble together, meek before God's truth, so that the main desire of both sides is for God to be glorified and His truth to have the supremacy. Then if one side is wrong, and we're assuming meekness, And assuming the desire for God to be glorified, they are more likely to be led by God's Spirit to confess humbly their faults instead of blindly defending themselves, like Job's three friends. We don't care, Job, that we can't answer you. We know we're right and you are wrong. You see, if we love God and have any zeal for His honor. The thing that matters to us is that His glory is vindicated. His honor is vindicated. And His truth is adored. What will concern us more than being right is for God to be glorified. Moreover, as we learn here from Elihu, we should never decide a matter of controversy based upon our own opinion, the partisan connections that we have with other people, or one-sided arguments. Job's friends knew no more of the whole matter than Job did. They didn't know the background, but they still held doggedly to their opinions and were exposed as fools. And when we come to God having dealings with other people, we've got to remember that we are very fallible judges of God's providence. His purposes are so much above anything that our puny reason could understand. And even if we say, well, we're going to yield to God's word alone, and that's all good. But the problem is we are very impure handlers of God's word and very inept judges of His providence. Now, please... This doesn't speak against the clarity of Scripture. It speaks against our weaknesses, our foolishness, our prejudices, our hatefulness. When we ought to be like Elihu, who is sober, meek, and charitable, just as the Lord has been with us. But Elihu has had enough of this debate, verse 2. 
He's mad. He's as mad as all get out. And remember, not all anger is sinful. And Elihu's anger certainly was not. So why was Elihu angry with Job's friends? Well, he was angry against them because he saw through their foolish falsehoods that suffering is always an indication of wickedness. They couldn't prove it, but they still held on to their conclusion and condemned Job. And they kept condemning him. So Elihu is is mad at their stubbornness because they would not let go. But he was also angry with Job. Notice it's mentioned in verses 1 and then again in in verse 1 and then again in verse 2. Why is he mad at Job? Because in defending himself against his three friends, now listen carefully, Job comes off looking as if he thinks God is unjust for afflicting a righteous man and treating him as an enemy. In other words, Job seemed to be more interested, at least to Elihu, in vindicating himself than in vindicating the honor and the righteousness of God. We have been throughout that. We have seen throughout that Job confesses himself to be a sinner. He offered sacrifices daily. He sought God's mercy. But his language has been at times intemperate, as we have seen, in defending himself against his three friends. Job, you're wicked. Job, you're wicked. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And this went on and on. Job's confession of sinfulness was pretty much lost upon his listeners. All they heard from Job was a defense of himself, saying at times he wanted to die, pleading with God to debate with him. But we also saw several chapters ago that Job defended God's righteousness. So Job is not pitting his righteousness against God. But Elihu was right. Job had not looked carefully at the other side of the argument. God's side. He's been looking at his sufferings too one-sidedly. Why me? If his friends were looking at his sufferings from the standpoint of his his wickedness or his assumed wickedness, and therefore deserving of God's judgment, Job has been looking at his affliction from the standpoint of his purity. Not his own purity in and of himself, but a very real purity that he knew God had given him. So to him, this made his affliction seem unfair. And this only increased his agitation and brought him to the conundrum that we have been looking at. So we learn, among other things from this, that whether we are in good circumstances or bad ones, we need to be more zealous in defending God's honor, His right to do by us, for us, in us, upon us, as He sees fit. We need to defend him more than we justify ourselves. And then when afflictions come, because everyone here is going to know affliction in one form or another, we won't chafe under them or think that God is unjust. But instead, remember, 
He is the best of all fathers. He loves me. And I may not understand what he's doing, but he is dealing always wisely with me and never stops treating me as the best of all fathers that he is. Now, Elihu has waited to speak. He mentions this throughout the chapter. He's hoping that age and wisdom will come up with an answer. And it is true, of course, that those who have seen more of life and walk longer with God should direct the younger, right? The younger should listen and trust that the Lord will guide them through their elders. But Elihu hadn't heard much wisdom in his mind from Job's elder friends, and he thought, Job, you're only thinking about what you're going through from the human side, not from God's side. It's interesting, Elihu's attitude is exactly the opposite of today. Because in our age, youth is practically the only speaker. No one wants to hear from old men. And in our situation, I think that has two main factors. One, the majority of older people who are alive today, unfortunately, because they have been rebels against God's authority in their own life, have not been able to teach the younger generation proper submission to authority. Rebels beget rebels, unless God's grace intervenes. We mustn't forget this. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, they're in constant combat, and God's covenant and electing grace divides the human race so where there is a significant portion of humanity alive today who are against God. And so the children of rebels most often turn out to be rebels themselves unless God blesses them with His grace and mercy. Secondly, this and immediate preceding generations have not been marked by faithful attention to God's word or deep piety or constant prayerfulness. Therefore, the older who are alive today have very little to say to the sins and troubles of our time. When we desperately need older, wise voices in public affairs, ancient men with gray hairs, and we need them to speak, but they're not to be found And so then what happens? Well, the youth only look to themselves and to their own peers, and this makes them very susceptible to those who are selling them a bowl of pottage, such as perversity, relativism, and escapism. The young are easily deceived because young and old alike need the wisdom of God's word in order to fulfill the station that he has given to each of them. This leads Elihu in verses 6 through 14 to speak of great men not always being wise. Now, we don't know how young Elihu was, and I don't necessarily think he was mocking them when he calls them in verse 6 very old, but to him they were very old. He was probably in his 20s or 30s, possibly even younger, But comparatively speaking, he was a young man. And he shows a fitting humility for a young man. And as it says there in verse 6, he says, I was afraid to speak out of deference to my elders. He says in verse 7, I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. 
And in verse 8, he seems to believe that he will be heard by them. He says, I'm a man. The Almighty can teach me. I've got a spirit that is susceptible to his word. Turn to 1 John 2.14. All of our young men, if you don't already know this, you should plant these verses in your heart. 1 John 2.14. I have written unto your fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, when God's word abides in a young heart, it can make the young mighty in speaking God's eternal truth. Even to rebuke the folly of old men like Samuel at at six years old did with Eli. Or like the three Hebrew Teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel, confounded all the learning of the Babylonians. So you see, years do not necessarily teach wisdom, as Elihu says here. If we are going to be wise when we are old, all I can do is suggest what to me is a very clear path, and that is close, careful study of Scripture. Consistent, lifelong meditation on God's word with prayer and godliness. Where these are not present in our life, what tends to happen in old age is that the mental faculties and the spiritual discernment diminish over time. So that the soul shrinks to match the shrunken body. And the mind actually becomes more prejudiced and more darkened because it had not fed upon a consistent diet of God's Word. And, you know, beloved, this is very sad to watch when we see this in our family and in individual friends. But boy, when it happens to a whole nation, it is a nation of calamity and it brings divine judgment due to our unbelief and rebellion. But within the church, now listen, do you remember what Paul said to the young Timothy? Let no man despise your youth. God intends to make the young wise because the Holy Spirit is their teacher and he is going to make the youth of babes to pray, mouth of babes to praise him. He's promised that. So we should respect our godly youth and encourage them to be an example and to help us through their example and the wisdom God has given to them. In verse 11, Elihu basically says, can I please speak? He asks for permission. He says, I've listened to you. I've, I've listened to your reasoning. I have thought about what you have to say. Verse 12, I paid close attention, but not one of you convinced Job. Not one of you answered his words. He said, you trusted your own wisdom. Verse 13 You said you found out wisdom and God will cast him down, at least you think he will. So he then says in verse 14, any child could have come up with that conclusion. I am going to go in a different direction. He says, I'm not going to answer him with your speeches. You know, when one line of argument fails, it's kind of stupid 
to keep rehashing the same worn-out arguments over and over again. And this young Elihu understood that. So even though he is a youth, he begs their indulgence. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do. Reformedheritage.org. Real simple. Reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by. Reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB Post Mailbox four zero two, and the address is fourteen eighty four Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 